Welcome to another episode of Studies in Empathy, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring empathy and patient experience. I'm your host, Adrian Boise, Chief Experience Officer here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Tim Gilligan here, who is, I don't, you have a lot of titles that you'll tell me about in a minute. Welcome to Studies in Empathy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tim, tell me all your titles and roles that you have and talk to us a little bit about what those mean. So I'm a medical oncologist. I focus on neurological cancers, but I have spent most of my career since getting to Cleveland in 2005 focused on education, teaching fellows in oncology, and then also teaching other doctors and clinicians, mainly around communication. How do we talk to people? And so I mean, I, at the Cancer Center Cleveland Clinic right now, I'm the vice chair for education I do a lot of different educational work there and oversee the training programs and have played a leadership role at the Center for Excellence in Healthcare Communication, which is the Cleveland Clinic's group really focused on teaching people who work in healthcare how to talk to each other, how to talk to patients, how to improve our communities by strengthening our relationships. And that's really what I'm most passionate about. I scribbled on my paper before you sat down, tennis, foodie, and maple syrup. I want to explain to our audience what that means. Let's start with, I know you're a huge tennis fan, racquetball. So actually, I need an escape from work, and tennis is that for me. It's a mindfulness moment. When I'm playing tennis, all I can do is focus on hitting this silly bouncing ball, and the stakes are so wonderfully low. The worst thing that can happen is the ball goes out and I lose a point. Um, But what I've really learned from tennis is how you get better at something, and... I think people with communication skills often think either you're good or you're not, and either you know how to do it or you don't, or you get taught it and then you just automatically go do it. And what's interesting on the tennis court is seeing that you know there's some things you're supposed to be doing and how consistently you don't do them unless you practice them very intentionally, very, very intentionally over and over again. And so I think in the teaching that I do, I try to remember that I'm trying to change people's behaviors. I'm trying to teach them new muscle memory. And the way that happens is by practicing, by having it broken down um, into individual steps. It's really helped me uh, think about how we learn things and to realize that a lot of this kind of training is more about learning muscle skills, motor skills, rather than just understanding something. The important difference between understanding something and actually being able to do it is huge. And in our interpersonal work, we often don't take that into account. When we teach surgery, we take that into account. We realize that to learn how to tie a knot, you have to practice tying knots over and over again. Similarly, if you wanna give someone bad news, you need to practice doing that and practice empathic statements and see what it feels like. Another analogy in tennis is, I was talking to my coach actually just this week about how some players get confused that he'll hit them the ball down the middle and they feel like, wow, I'm really good, I can hit it. And then suddenly he starts hitting it corner to corner and they have to hit while running and they start hitting the ball out and they're confused. So why am I suddenly playing worse? And I think it's the same in the hospital. You're having a good day, it's early in the morning, you're relaxed, you have a really good conversation, but then it's really busy, you're stressed, you're tired, and you have to have a difficult conversation and suddenly it doesn't go so well. And it's the same thing, you're off balance, you're running. If you're highly skilled, you can still perform at a high level, but you have to practice. So I feel like, I worry it's trite. I'm a guy using sports as an analogy for life, but it's worked for me. (laughs) I've known you for some time, so we'll forgive you that. Um, The other thing is the foodie concept. So there's, I'm gonna try to draw an analogy here that we'll see how it goes. But you're a recipe follower to the T when you're cooking. Recently, you tried to teach me 
it was maybe a couple of years ago, how to make an omelet or that there's a special way to make an omelet. Right. And I think about actually in healthcare, how we're evolving these amazing checklists, right? For care and what, what we should say at these certain moments and why they often fall short. Talk to me about passion for food and following checklists and rules and how that relates to communication skills. So for me, it's really about excellence and the pursuit of excellence. And so the thing about omelets is there are many different levels to an omelet. And anyone who cooks just about thinks they know how to make an omelet. But what they're making may not be considered an omelet by a French chef who knows how to make what the French consider a proper omelet. I, there's a very funny story in the New York Times by Jacques Papin, who is a famous chef, used to cook for the president of France and then actually came over to the United States to be the Howard Johnson's cook designing their frozen meals, ironically enough. Um, but he had a thing in the New York Times about how to make an omelet and, and the New York Times reporter described to Jacques how he made an omelet. And Jacques paused for a moment and said, well, I sometimes eat eggs like that, but that's not really an omelet. <laughs> my, 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 but my point is that we can be good at something and we can still aspire to get better at it. And so in the Julia Child Mastering the Art of French Cooking, there are page after page about how to make a proper French omelet. And it's actually really hard. In some restaurants with high standards, they'll actually ask for someone who's applying to cook there. They'll ask them to make an omelet to see whether or not they really know what they're doing or not. It's, it's a high level test. Um, Maybe similar to forehand, I can hit a, f a forehand in tennis, not the way Roger Federer hits a forehand in tennis. The reason that analogy has come up for me is that in the hospital, there are lots of people who think they're good communicators and that's fine. They may well be good communicators. I'm not gonna argue with that. There's no reason they can't aspire to be better communicators. And oftentimes learning very specific skills and taking the time to practice something is what's necessary to go from being good to being great. And I think, you know, in a lot of our work that we've done together, we've tried to appeal to people's professionalism in the sense of you want to be the best you can be. So even if you're already good, don't you still aspire to be better the way a professional and other things does? A baseball player wants to get better. An opera singer wants to get better. Don't we want to get better? And it takes effort and practice. That's right. And I know in the work that we did, right, we actually demonstrated that no matter where you are in terms of your baseline skill set, you can get better with yes. effective training. Yes. Yes. I think of Steve Jobs' famous line, good enough isn't. <laughs> uh, you have more references than anyone I know. Talk to me. You wrote this really interesting article on a conversation you had with a patient about maple syrup. Talk to me about what yeah, that, so that taught you. That was a, a profound learning experience to me. It, it was ironic because in the course that we were teaching at the time, we had a slide for the participants that said that if you are working with a patient and you're finding it hard to like them or get along with them, try to find something that you can authentically praise or authentically respect. I didn't really know what that meant until I saw this patient that you're referencing. And I go and I'm rounding one day, it's on the oncology service. So you can imagine how sick everyone is. The patients who are dying, the patients who are having terrible abdominal pain, the patients who can't stop throwing up. It's, it, we are desperately trying to help very, very sick people. And I go into a room with my team of residents and a fellow and the patient's furious at us and I have no idea why. And she says, what are you doing? Are you trying to kill me? I said, why, what happened? She said, my pancakes came with sugar syrup rather than pure maple syrup. And of course my first instinct was, this is not the biggest problem on the unit this morning. Why is this the patient who's angry at us? 
but honestly, the second thought that went through my mind is, oh my God, they're medical students and residents and a fellow watching me. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a good communicator and I'm really pissed off now. And so what can I say to this patient? And I thought about that slide at that moment, interestingly enough, and I said, how can I connect with her? And so it's good you mentioned the foodiness because I'm interested in food. So I said to her, it sounds like nutrition is really important to you. And she said, yes, it is. I try to cook healthy for my family at home. We buy organic fruits and vegetables. We try not to eat too much sugar, try to eat whole grains. I'm trying to take care of myself. And I come into the hospital and I'm served unhealthy food. And suddenly, like, I realized that's a whole different way of looking at this. And, and suddenly maybe she's not as unreasonable as that initial accusation sounded. And so we talked, I said, that's great. I wish all of my patients were so attentive to their nutrition because I think nutrition is really important to our health. And we formed this great bond. And then the next day I came in, it was like we were best friends. And, and the really touching thing is she sent me probably the sweetest note after she got out of the hospital saying, I'm so glad you went into medicine. So it was, it was interesting. I turned, not I turned, the skills I had learned turned this potentially very negative encounter into actually an incredibly positive encounter by not reacting to her anger in the moment, but instead trying to understand her perspective and, and making a partnership out of it. So it was, it was really important learning for me. And, and the last thing I would say about it is it changed my perspective with so-called difficult patients to really think it's not their job to be likable. It's, it's my job to find something I can relate to and connect mm. with. And, and if I can't, then maybe I'm not the right doctor for them. Well, I'm glad you went into medicine too. Thank Your you. patients are lucky to have you. You do a lot of coaching in your role. So we've trained just for backgrounds. You know, we've trained four or 5,000 clinicians here at the Cleveland Clinic in relationship-centered communication skills and several thousand beyond our walls. You've been a huge part of that. And some of your work I know specifically is around coaching. In the environment today, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen as you stand beside clinicians and physicians who are trying their best to communicate effectively with patients and what they've taught us about how we can help? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing that I've really learned is that it's really hard to watch yourself uh, Atul Gawande's piece in The New Yorker about coaching, and he talked about, you know, once you finish your medical training, no one watches you anymore and no one helps you get better. It's like once you have your graduation certificate from your training program, that's it, and then it's up to you. And so he got one of his old professors to come and watch him operate well into his own practice. He wasn't in training anymore. And by having this expert watch him, he was able to improve Gawande's surgical approach because he could see things that Gawande couldn't see himself because obviously it's harder for us to watch ourselves. And I think that's the sort of thing that I see. A powerful example for me was I saw a, a doctor working with a patient and the doctor was doing a procedure on the patient. It was a young boy about seven years old and the doctor had numbed the patient up and assured him that it wasn't going to hurt. But in the middle of the procedure, the boy was trying to push himself as far back into the chair he was sitting in as possible as a procedural chair. And there were tears streaming down his face and the doctor stopped the procedure and said, don't cry, smile. It's not that bad. I thought, what a bizarre thing to say in that moment. But there was no awareness. And so the doctor actually, he took me to his house afterwards and we had tea to talk about what had happened. Not just that incident, but the whole time I spent coaching him. And I ran the incident by him and he was kind of shocked to hear it. And then he remembered it. 
and he had some insight into it. But I think for me, it was sort of one of those moments that it's, I just, I wish we all could have coaching because I think we all could learn, not that we all necessarily would say something quite like that, but I'm sure there are things I do that I'm not aware of that aren't helpful. And it's hard for me to know what those things are. I mean, I could videotape myself. So, so one of the sort of overall things about coaching is we all need coaching. And if we open ourselves up to it, I think we can all get better. One of the main, main, main things I've learned uh, by shadowing doctors, listening to them, watching them, is just how much we talk mm. and how much we expect the patient to listen to and absorb. And I think that if I were to make one change that would have a positive impact or that has, has had a positive impact for people, it's really, it's just to stop the talking and to listen more. And so to maybe to enter the room with curiosity rather than enter the room and say, well, here are your test results. This is what we know. And this is the plan. We can enter the room and say, you know, what's your understanding of what's going on? What have other clinicians told you about your situation? What questions do you have? And, and, and letting the patient play a more active role in their care. The whole idea with coaching in terms of the relationship between the coach and the coachee is, is we're trying to help the person develop their own solutions. I think often in life we think, if only I can find the expert, they'll tell me what to do. And I think we really vastly overrate the value of expertise and advice. And coaching is really trying to increase self-awareness so people can come up with their own solutions. And that can also be applied to patients. So there's sort of a parallel process there. The, the, the big learnings for me out of this is that we need more coaching because Physicians are out there on their own trying to get better, but they don't even have a good metric of how they're doing. And, and it'd be like me trying to improve my tennis game without having a coach from time to time mm -hmm. to help me figure out what to work on. And then the second thing is to slow down, talk less, listen more, let the patient do more of the work. It's better for the patient. It's better for us. And I think we get better relationships. Can you talk to me about whether or not you think you can checklist empathy I think sometimes when people are trying to be more empathic, when you hear a language that isn't authentic to them, like, gosh, you seem sad. You know, no, it's so it's so identifiable. So in your experience, what works in sort of getting them to actually empathize in a way that's authentic? So I, I have to go back to tennis, of course. Oh, geez. Um, when learning a new stroke in tennis, you accept that there's going to be a period of awkwardness. One of the first things my current coach said to me is that if you want to get better, you're going to have to be willing to lose for a while because it's not going to work at first. Mm. You're going to have to be willing to go through that phase when it's awkward and you're losing, but you're going to come out the other end and you're going to be a better player and you're going to win more. And I think uh, I can give a very specific example. There was someone who's working on my serve who in order to get the weight transfer correctly would have one of my feet up in the air and just jump off of the other foot just to feel that transfer. I'm never going to serve that way. And it feels awkward as hell. It's not authentic. But by going through that process, I end up in a place where I'm more effective. And I, I think the, the, the checklist approach and the steps to practicing empathy are very analogous to that, that what we have people practice when they do that, that's not the end point we want to get them to. But if they're not saying anything empathic, if they're just giving the patient facts and reassurance and trying to make everything okay, but they're never saying, wow, this really is hard for you, isn't it? Or you're having a really hard time. I can see you're sad or upset. Or if we don't have any empathic statements, we have to start somewhere. And when we start, it's not going to sound particularly expert. If we practice and we do it, it becomes fluent over time and we end up in a better place. And I think we encounter a lot of that resistance that we ask someone to do something new and they complain that it feels awkward, but everything new feels awkward. Mm. The first 
10 proper omelets you make are going to suck, right? And, and, but, but you're going to come out with a better omelet in the end if you're willing to go through that process. So I wonder if it's sort of like, you know, with pain, one of the key teachings in pain is to tell patients who are going through orthopedic surgery that they're going to have pain. Mm -hmm. They should not expect to have zero pain. I think it's similar with empathy. You shouldn't expect a new thing to feel fluent at first. The authenticity is important, but it may not come until you've practiced it enough that it feels natural to you. So it reminds me of a brilliant neurosurgeon who wrote me after one of our classes and said, I've been waiting my whole life for somebody to tell me how to do this stuff. And what was so interesting was there's somebody in pursuit of excellence in their craft, and yet in the language of communicating and connecting with another human being, just didn't have a roadmap. Like, what does that even look like? I wanna be the best at it, but I don't know. So I think oftentimes that checklist or model can be a frame. Absolutely. And then people can play with it and adapt. Yes, people need to know where to start. And then once they master it, they can start to improvise off of it and riff and make it their own. And, but they need a roadmap. I don't know how anyway. many doctors are riffing, but I, <laughs> I see what you're saying. All right, talk to me about empathy being hard, right? In your world in oncology, I worry sometimes we think it's this easy skill. You just name the emotion and move on and that will go great. Uh, and yet I think the hard truth is it's really difficult to be empathic, especially in the moments you described at the end of a day when you're running late, when you've seen 30 patients. Tell me a little bit about, is it hard? Do you agree? And if so, how in your own mind do you work through that or or try to make sure you're still present? And are you thinking hard, difficult, or hard, emotionally hard? Or both. both. I think it's both. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think it's both. I mean, I think it's, it, it takes, it's this act of imagination in a sense. I mean, it's, if I'm talking to a, I'm an oncologist, so I'm talking to cancer patients. And so for me, it's trying to imagine what it would be like to have a doctor tell me I had cancer, or that my cancer had come back, or that we had exhausted all of the effective treatments for the cancer. And, and, and that requires active imagination and in a sense projecting myself into the patient's world. And some people are better at that than others. Um, if I'm really busy and there's all this noise in the back of my head about what's already happened during the day and all the charts I still have to close or the phone calls I have to return, it may be hard for me to be fully present. And I think that, so I think around the difficulty in a sense, it's for me, it's mainly just freeing up the attention and the emotional energy to be able to do that. And, and that's why I think you can't do it 24 hours a day all the mm. time. Fortunately, you don't usually have to. Not everyone's having a particularly emotional moment, in which case empathy may not be needed. I think the harder part for me is just the emotional drain sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, there's times I walk out of room and I think, I can't believe my job is to have these conversations that even when I have them well, there's a, this is an analogy you're probably not expecting. I was a big Star Trek fan when I was a kid. <laughs> And, and they had an empath, they had an empath character. On. This, <laughs> this is back to William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy one, but they had this character who could take on another person's physical wounds. It was this planet that was gonna die and these leaders of some other planet were trying to decide who should be saved. And they wanted someone who was really caring and empathic to be saved. So they were testing how caring this person was and using her empathic skills. So they would beat up Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and then she would go in and she would put her hand on them and their wounds would transfer onto her. Mm. And then she would recover and heal. 
And I, there are times that that's what I think of when I walk out of a room, that not that I have taken on the patient's suffering because they still have their suffering, but there's a sense in which I walk out of the room feeling it at this very deep level. And, and I, I feel like if you're going to do this, you need to take seriously this business of recharging your batteries and, and, and processing what you've been through. Because I feel like it feels like deeply caring work and it is draining. And, and for me, that's the harder part. And that's probably why I really prioritize getting on the tennis court and getting somewhere where I can hit the ball as hard as I can and, and, and think about other stuff, get out my aggressions and frustrations and things like that. I think you need to take care of yourself to be able to do it. Because otherwise, I think you burn out. So I'm hearing you highlight this cognitive and affective empathy, right? That ability to be curious without necessarily taking it on as that cognitive piece and yet that affective. Some degree we do feel, we should feel what that might feel like, but how do we let it go or show up the next day is something. And I would throw in one other thing, which is there's so much value in just showing up and listening that even if you're not feeling particularly skilled, at empathy that day or maybe ever, just showing up, sitting down and listening and showing that you care. I mean, that, that's such a huge part of it. We sometimes think, oh my God, I got to say this really profound thing. But oftentimes there isn't anything all that profound to be said. But presence is really profound. Not being scared to go into the room and sitting and listening to what they're scared of is, is, is so huge. Um, I think sometimes we forget that. And then maybe we don't go in the room because we think I don't have anything really profound to say. And we forget that, honestly, there isn't anything that profound anyone could say. But showing up and being present means a lot to people who are suffering. And they notice that a lot of people don't show up because they're scared. So if we can be someone who does show up, we're actually differentiating ourselves and we're helping in a way that is often needed and useful. And there's this idea we learned from Walter Bale and others around the bottom of the jug, right? That no matter what is coming out of the top of that jug, no matter what the person's saying, I don't like my maple syrup, I can't believe, <laughs> that at the bottom of that is fear. Right. And uh, oftentimes they want to know that we can sit with that. Is presence something you think we can all do? That's a great question. I mean, we're all different. Um, I think most people can. I think that there are probably instances in which people have certain personalities that they may be better off having a member of their team play that role for them mm. um, to some extent. And I've been in situations like that where there's a nurse practitioner or there's another physician or, or another clinician on the team who is better at this stuff. And that's the great thing about having a team. Sometimes, you know, you try to get each player doing what they're best at. If someone's really good at playing first base, maybe you don't need them to play shortstop. So I, I, I think most people can learn to do this. I actually think most people will enjoy their work more mm. if they do some of this. But if it's really just not going to work, then an alternative is to, is to have a team approach and, and, and to divide up those responsibilities. And you mentioned burnout. When we trained clinicians, one of the things I think we learned is that you could reduce emotional exhaustion associated with the type of work we do by reinforcing those relationships we have with patients. Because for most of us, that's a tremendous source of meaning. And the more meaning we have as clinicians, the less burnout. You want to comment on that? Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I think we're very lucky to get to do such meaningful work. There are many people on planet Earth 
who spend the day doing activities just to get by that don't necessarily have a lot of meaning to them. And, and so to be with people who are suffering and to be able to help them, whether it's to physically, medically help them, or at least emotionally and spiritually help them, is very meaningful and profound work. And if we can be in touch with that, I think we can cope with a lot of the stresses of our days a lot better. But pacing is important and volume is important. And we hear from clinicians sometimes that they're worried that, oh, if I let myself care about you know, patients, then I'll be too badly wounded when something bad happens to them. And I would just counter that with, what's the point of being a doctor if we don't care about them? I mean, that's where the meaning is. But we have to find ways to navigate it that are healthy for us and healthy for the patient. And I mean, sometimes boundary setting is important for that in the sense that we do have to set limits as to what we're responsible for. And I think sometimes people don't step in because they're worried that once they make the first gesture, it's going to, it's like a, a, a cascade and they're never going to stop. And I experienced that as a fellow, just, I found that sort of bizarre that I go into a room and talk to a patient and give them this life-changing, devastating news. And then I'd leave the room and close the door. And the next big question for me is, what am I going to have for lunch? And I think they're going to have to go home and live with this. And I almost felt like I should go home with them, right? And help them and mm -hmm. answer their questions and cook them lunch or whatever. And, and I can't do that. There have to be boundaries. And, and if we're clear about the boundaries, then I think also, I think that's important for burnout. Because I've seen people burn out because they, their interpretation of caring means they're going to do everything and they give yep. their cell phone numbers to the patients and they're available when they're on vacation and they never protect themselves. And then they burn out and they drop out of medicine and then they're not helping anybody. So truly one of the most amazing clinicians I know, glad to call you colleague and friend. We're lucky to have you not just in medicine, but at the Cleveland Clinic. So thank you for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. This concludes Studies in Empathy podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, my.clevelandclinic.org slash podcasts. Subscribe to Studies in Empathy podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon. Mm -hmm.